world, and welcome to Sybil's Guide to Olympian Worship, the podcast where we discuss Hellenic polytheism basics. My name's Sybil, and I have been a Hellenic polytheist for several years now. I started this podcast to answer some of the most common questions people just discovering this religion have. So join me on this journey of exploring the Greek gods and their worship. Episode 3. Alright, so last month we ran through the history of the worship of the Greek gods. This month, we tackle some varied topics which deal with different approaches to worship. Part 1. Reconstructing the Past So, first off, we will tackle what exactly is Reconstructionism. Well, to simply define that, Reconstructionism means that one is attempting to reproduce ancient practices as best they can in their religious practice today. Reconstructionists will favor historical references and approaches over more modern ones. So for example, when it comes to offerings, they may prefer to only offer things that we can find records of being offered in ancient Greece, like wine or honey. For full disclosure, I lean more towards Reconstructionism, as personally, I feel that those in the past spent centuries finding the way to worship in an honoring way, and thus it is wise to do our best to continue in those ways. That said, it does not mean it is the only way to approach worship or the correct way to worship. It is simply one of several. So just because I chose this path doesn't mean you have to as well. Nor do you have to adhere to only reconstruction in your own practice. Many of us acknowledge that fully reconstruction is simply not possible. Some of this is due to knowledge being lost over time, other times it's because it is not acceptable by current society to do some practices, and still other times it's just personal issues prevented. For instance, festivals are frequently difficult to recreate as they were once held because many have to practice solitarily and festivals were a community event. So many don't have enough practitioners nearby in order to do an actual gathering. So they will either change festivals to fit a sole participant or not do them. Another example of divergence would be the use of fire in offerings. Some live in apartments that prohibit the use of fire. Some just aren't comfortable with that inside but have no outdoor option so they may choose to not include it or find ways to work around it. Similarly, animal sacrifice is usually not practiced in the modern day. If meat is offered, it is usually slaughtered and butchered before the ritual rather than during it as it was done in ancient times. In addition, if you cannot offer with a fire, meat sacrifices are difficult due to them working best when burned. Otherwise, you just have spoiling meat at your altar and I don't know about you, but that isn't something I want in my house. There are also ethical objections. Some are vegan or vegetarian, and any leftover meat wouldn't be consumed, so it would be wasteful. Many, regardless of dietary restrictions, also don't feel it's humane or moral to slaughter an animal for sacrificial purposes. Not to mention that outside of farmers, most of us do not have access to the typical sacrificial animals. Those are some easy major divergence points in modern practice. Most would say you can diverge at these points and still be considered more reconstructionist in your practice. But one does not have to be wholly reconstructionist in one's practice. Reconstructionist versus revivalist can end up being more of a sliding scale than a black and white approach. For instance, I tend to lean reconstructionist for much of my day-to-day approach. I make carnips to wash my hands and face in before I scatter barley in my dish, since I worship indoors before mixing water and wine, as this was how wine was typically drunk in ancient times. In contrast to this though, my festival schedule is a mix of traditional holidays and ones I personally gleaned from holidays I normally celebrate. So while I practice theogamia, I also give offerings on the 4th of July to several gods. 
besides just that, even my more traditional holidays are structured with more revivalist practices. It's up to you if you want to lean more reconstructionist, be strict reconstructionist, or go the more revivalist route. Speaking of, part two, reviving and adapting to the present. The revivalist take of Hellenic polytheism favors taking inspiration from the past and creating your own practices from that rather than trying to recreate what is gone. They may feel that we've grown beyond the past or that we should accept that what once was has died and thus it is more practical to just remake their practice according to their own beliefs. There is value in this approach. It is true that we cannot achieve the past approach any longer in many ways due to the scattered nature of many believers and the loss of knowledge. To some, trying to recreate the past is more of a burden than a boon. Also, some may just disagree with certain tenets or practices from the past and wish to just cater to their tastes. A revivalist take does allow one to create a very personalized version of worship. As I said earlier, my festival calendar is mostly personally selected holidays. I also diverge in how I worship on traditional holidays as well. For example, on Thargalia, the birthday festivals of sorts for Artemis and Apollon, I bake two small cakes and decorate them accordingly before offering them with other gifts. I treat it more like a birthday party than the traditional version of a purification agricultural ceremony. It's not that I dislike the traditional festivals and their practices. In fact, many of them I would love to do, but it comes down to that solitary practice. It's hard to choose someone to drive out of your group ceremonially when you don't have another practitioner in your area. Some might change due to personal issues. With any offering I do, I do not consume any of it. I typically offer mixed wine, and my family has a history of alcoholism. I lost an uncle directly because of it, and my grandfather from it ruining his health. Because of that, I am very careful with alcohol, tending to only drink it when I'm at a restaurant or on a special occasion. I also don't care for the taste of most wines and can end up coughing and gagging on them. Because of all these reasons, I don't drink the offerings because I don't care to partake, and I think coughing mid-offering is disrespectful. <laughs> I also take a more revivalist lean on the hymns I write. I don't use typical Greek styles or approaches, instead favoring a free verse style. This is solely due to years of writing poetry and just finding that this style suits me best. I wrote poetry for years before I became a polytheist. So I just took my skills from that and applied them here. I've also created my own epithets, a nickname of sorts for a god at times. For example, most of us don't use fireplaces for cooking and warming our houses anymore, so Hestia may not be as applicable as the goddess of the hearth, but many do have gas stoves and heating. Those have pilot lights that must be kept lit in order for your stove or heat to work. They serve the same purpose that the fireplace once did, so there's no reason why we can't acknowledge that by saying Hestia is now the goddess of pilot light. I have some trees or animals local to my area that I view as sacred to specific gods. Not because they were in the past, but because they're part of my local area and so I can connect with them better than something that doesn't grow here. I don't have plain trees near me. But I do have maple trees, which are one of the main trees used in musical instruments. So I associate them with the pollen because of that. I will call raccoons little servants of Hermes because they're little trash bandits. <laughs> Clearly, I don't believe this varying approach to worship as in conflict with my other beliefs, rather as a way to add more to them and acknowledge the passage of time since ancient Greece. Just because the Greeks didn't have the same ideas or opinions doesn't mean I can't have them. 
religion could be very regionally distinct in ancient Greece. Aphrodite Aria mainly appears in Sparta, and Athens had no warring epithets for her. To act as if we all need to agree or to not incorporate our local region into our religious practice is equally ignorant of the past approach and diversity. If you are more curious about our revivalist approach, there is a podcast called Tea with the Gods that approaches things from more of this perspective. They're also on Tumblr and YouTube as well, so you can also catch up with them there. Part 3. Do I have to choose one or the other? Remember, just because someone chooses or leans a different way in their approach does not necessarily make them incorrect or mean they aren't practicing correctly. Both Reconstructionism and Revivalism paths have merits to them, and they are not necessarily mutually exclusive of each other. You can have parts of your worship that take more influence from one than the other. You don't have to choose one or the other, but if you choose to, that's fine too. Just keep in mind when interacting with others that if they differ from you, that doesn't mean you should treat them poorly. This is where we differ greatly from most Abrahamic beliefs. As a whole, we do not preach a single correct doctrine. Much of our personal practice is left to the individual to choose what works best for them. There's a few things that we'll go into later that most would consider uncouth, and then there's just plain misinformation, but overall, the community doesn't dictate one singular right way to worship. So if someone else chooses to drink their underworld offerings, there's no need to go, but the ancients didn't. It is their practice, and they have their own reasons for this. If someone asks you why you choose a certain stance, you can explain your reasoning, but do your best to remember they may not agree with your reasons. Not to mention, rather than yell, it's generally better to keep an open mind and ask nicely. People generally respond better to warmth and kindness than to anger. And on top of that, we all start off new at some point. It can be hard to find good sources when you start off, and yelling at new followers helps no one. If anything, it can drive them away. We should be helping newcomers build their practice by giving them direction and correction when needed. If you ask nicely, you might find out that it's due to personal limitations. Finally, how you treat others both within and outside of your community is a part of Xenia, which the theory are do absolutely care about. We'll get into that a little later this episode, though. It is also worth keeping in mind that part of why revivalist approaches can be more popular is because, well, honestly, they're easier to do. There's not as much research to do, but research for this approach is easier to find through blogs and similar internet sources. Plus, it can make for an easier transition from other pagan religions like Neo-Wicca. You have a lot of the basic ideas, so you can just adapt. There's an appeal to that ease of entry it creates. Also, we should mention that other worshippers' practices can differ due to physical limitations. That can range from disabilities, to mental health, to family problems. Part of why I worship indoors is due to the privacy it allows me. I don't want my Christian family touching my altars or interrupting my rituals, so keep it confined to my room makes it so that I can just close the door and worship. For someone with a physical disability, that may mean they have limited mobility, so they have to adapt practices to work with their bodies. Mental health is probably the most common one I see crop up as an issue for worshipers. I think we all have our struggles here, and if your worship style has to change during a difficult time, that's fine. It's nothing to stare at others for, nor is it something to beat yourself up for. Part 4. What is soft versus hard? You'll likely hear this come up in a more general pagan discussion or community, 
but at times you may hear the terms soft polytheist or hard polytheist. These terms refer to how one views a pantheon. Soft polytheists tend to view the gods less as dis separate distinct beings and more as different facets or more amalgamations. It depends from person to person how unified they view the pantheon, but that said, they do view it as more fluid. Some may only view some gods as merged, while others may think all the gods are just a facet of one much larger being. It's a bit like the Holy Trinity and some branches of Christianity idealize. Meanwhile, hard polytheists prescribe to the notion that each god is a separate, unique, and distinct being from one another. They will hold that each god is a separate entity and should be treated as such. What may work with one god may not work with all of them. The reason why the terms hard and soft are used is it references how hard the lines are drawn between the deities within a pantheon. For a soft polytheist, those lines shift and blur. For a hard polytheist, they are defined boundaries. Many Hellenic polytheists tend towards the hard polytheistic outlook, but there are some who may prefer a soft outlook. I am a firm hard polytheist just because in all my interactions with the gods, I can distinctly sense a difference between them. Hermes feels different than Apollon to me. I can tell who is approaching based off the feelings I get from each of them, the same as with mortal humans. In an example of a soft polytheist approach, you can look up Timothy J. Alexander's books on Amazon. He has two out there. Honestly, they're not very good. <laughs> I've read them, they are not very good. Almost everything you can learn from there, you can find elsewhere. They're really basic stuff. You kind of know it already from just going through school and learning about Greece. Uh, that said, he does view them, view the gods more as a amalgamation type of thing. Like each one is a different facet of the same being. It should also be noted that, um, how to put this delicately, he basically renounced the religion so that he could basically push his political career forward. So uh, you may not like him because of that kind of subtext of his beliefs don't really mean much but to him apparently but hey if you want to read his books I'm not going to stop you I would just rank them out of like three out of ten stars not worth it all right moving on <laughs> part five I've seen the term UPG another thing that may lead to differing practices is personal experiences in the pagan community at large, this is called unverified personal gnosis, or shortened to UPG. This concept is essentially that one's personal experiences with the deity or within religious practice are more important or take precedence over community consensus. For example, someone may personally subscribe to Persephone, being a patron goddess of abuse victims due to their personal interactions with her. But the community as a whole does not subscribe to the same belief. It doesn't mean that person is wrong, that person just has a personal experience to that. In general, most UPG is perfectly fine and valid. It's a personal, it's an individual's experience and thus a part of their personal practice. That said, there are some times when UPG can become a problem. One of those times would be if someone begins to try to push their UPG as the only right way to approach or an absolute especially when no one else has the same experiences with that UPG. The other time would be if it blatantly contradicts something well known about a deity. For instance, it is well documented since ancient times that Apollon is a god with specific cultic practices based on both female and male lovers. There are even festivals surrounding some of these myths. 
one instance being Prince Hyacinthus and the festival Hyacinthia that was inspired in part by this myth. So, if someone's UPG is that Apollon has never had a male lover and is repulsed by men sexually, this will be one UPG that many would question strongly or flat out reject due to how much it differs from history and most others' interactions with this deity. So the takeaway here is that while everyone is entitled to their UPG, one should not just take every case of UPG from anyone and everyone as fact. Keep an open mind to it, but do not blindly accept. It's called unverified and personal for a reason. Some examples of UPG would be how a god appears to you, the physical impression of the, both their looks and how they feel to you. For example, when I think of Apollon or I'm drawing him, I see him with shoulder length, straight golden blonde hair, tan Mediterranean skin, and golden eyes. Meanwhile, my friend who introduced me to the religion sees him with paler skin, short golden curls, and cornflower blue eyes. For an example again of how not to approach your UPG, many view Demeter and Persephone as having darker skin. The issue here isn't that. If they appear to you looking that way, great. I've seen some great depictions of that. But the issue comes when people have tried to support this as a historical viewpoint by using red figure and black figure pottery. Art history nerd coming out again. That's not why they were depicted in black. These types of pottery have only three options of slip colors, white, red, and black. The slip would be applied in various thicknesses and then fire to get it to adhere to the pottery. But again, these slips were only available in white, red, and black. Those are the colors you work within that restriction. So they usually pick the color based off of what would create the best end image and silhouette. There were some unofficial rules of sorts that we do see followed a lot though. One of those is that men were done in a black slip and women in a white slip. The other thing is that Chthonic deities would be done in a black slip as symbolic of their ties to the underworld. Demeter and Persephone have Chthonic aspects. When they were depicted in black, it was not because they were seen as having dark skin. It was because the artist wanted to emphasize their Chthonic nature. Again, if you see them as dark skinned, go wild, all power to you. But you can't try to argue that your view of them is correct because, oh, this ancient vase depicted them in black. So the ancients view them that way too, therefore I am right. You're purposely twisting the history to then to suit your UPG, trying to justify it or convert others to your side by doing so. And it's not okay. Don't do that. <laughs> With this, you may also see the term verified gnosis pop up rarely. There are usually UPG that is not historically found, but so many followers and worshipers have similar experiences on this front that it's become generally accepted as accurate. I think lots of people unfairly write this off when we look at history. We can see how this is how some of the mystery cults began or how new epithets were added to a list. I don't think the gods are static beings. Like us, they can adapt and change to modern times and it's not wrong to acknowledge that. Just because you're diverging from history and adding to it doesn't mean it's always going to be wrong. Part six, I saw these pillars. So 
If you have visited a few online enclaves of Hellenic polytheism, you may have come across someone or multiple people talking about the pillars of Hellenismus or some other variation of the religion. These are a vague set of values that some ascribe to as tenets of the religion. They are not universally agreed on, nor do all follow them or believe in them. I will list the most common ones and talk about each one a little bit, but know that not everyone has the same number or puts the same weight into these as others. One of the most commonly cited pillars is ethike erete. It is the idea of being ethical and adhering to one's personal ethics. This is one that is sometimes practiced in keeping with the Delphic Maxims. If you aren't aware, the Delphic Maxims are a set of ideas said to be passed on via oracle from Apollon. Usually people agree that's from seven people, but that's questionable too. There are 147 of the Delphic Maxims though. If you care to look them up, there are sites that catalog all of them, but I will not be listing them here. It would take way too long. <laughs> this particular tenet at the Cairete is more popular as it does have a nice core idea to it. One holds oneself to your ethical standards and it also encourages you to believe in the gods. Another pillar would be Arete. This is considered by most to be the practice of habitual excellence. It's about holding oneself to striving to be your best self every day to the best of your ability. You'll see this one popping up a lot because it encourages you to put your best foot forward. I know this is one that Apollon tends to push me towards a lot. He's always pushing me in my art to strive for more. As an example, I am not spectacular with dip pens as a medium. I tend to be very slow and mess up more with them. So when I was looking to ink a piece I did for him and muses, I had the feeling I should use the dip pens. But I kept trying to use my lack of skill with them as an excuse to use more familiar options. Apollon basically went, no, I want you to use the dip pens. It's fine if you mess up, but I want you to push yourself on this piece. You can do it. We both know you can. That piece is one of the best pieces I have ever done, and I actually ended up using it in my portfolio for art school. Eusebia is the reverence, loyalty, and sense of duty towards the theory. This is essentially the idea that one should respect the gods, honor them, and otherwise be pious. So to offer to them specifically from the desire to show love and devotion. This one is another very popular pillar, and I'm sure you can see why. It ties into the idea of why we do what we do. Why do we worship? Out of love, out of reverence for the theory. Hecate is the pillar about the maintaining of ritual purity by avoiding miasma. Miasma is a topic we will cover in another episode, but for now we will leave it at it is essentially just the accumulation of the world's influence and draining of you. It is not sin. I prefer to think of it as the stuff that gets us out of the mindset of worship. So it's those random thoughts of, is there anything the oven on? To the worries over how you're going to pay that next bill and things like that. It's the distractions of life. They do build up and cloud your spiritual senses in a way. So personally, I do encourage making currents and cleansing if only to keep yourself spiritually clear and more open to sensing things around you. But miasma can also just be literal dirt. So like the mud on your pants from walking outside, anything like that. So this pillar is usually taken as both maintaining your physical hygiene, but also just coming to the theory in the right sense of mind, focused on them. Another pillar is nomos archaeos, which is the observance of ancient tradition, religious law, and customs. 
You can probably tell from the definition of this one alone that it's very much a pillar with a your mileage may vary tag to it. It very much adheres to a reconstructionist approach. It's one of the pillars I take the most issue with being considered a core belief. There's a lot of this that simply is prevented in modern practice by access or because it was lost to time and we don't know anymore. For instance, if I want to have an oracle ritual, I can't go bathe in the sacred spring at Dimdia. That was an ancient tradition as part of the preparation in that area. Delphi had a similar ritual for priestesses. Similarly, I can't go into the temple at Delphi with a tripod and breathe in the fumes from the crack. It's shifted now and it more seeps out, but that's another story. <laughs> I can't recreate these traditions now, much as I may want to recreate them. I think that calling this a pillar shames us for concessions we may not have a choice in making. It comes across as very rigid and refusing to acknowledge the passage of time, and I don't think it's actually something ancient practitioners would have agreed with either. Their practices shifted and changed at times based on asking the gods ethical dilemmas or just necessary alterations. I think making this a pillar also sets us up for failure as well. That lack of ability, that inflexibility it encourages means that you will fail to achieve it and that failure can be a hindrance in worship. For a more universal pillar, we come to Sophia. This pillar is about the pursuit of wisdom, understanding, and truth. It's about never ceasing in your quest for knowledge so as to better worship and serve the gods. It's about keeping your mind open and always learning. This one is popular and personally, I'm a huge fan of this one. You will never know everything. You should accept that right now. That said, it doesn't mean you shouldn't try to learn more, especially in your religious practice. Learning is wonderful, it will always benefit you, and in worship, it will open up new doors. For instance, I learned a few months ago that mead was used in divination rituals because I was researching both for this podcast and for a term paper. Look, I believe in double tasking whenever possible. <laughs> if I didn't keep learning, I would not know many of the things I do. I look at learning about the gods and their worship as an investment. You can even dedicate it to one or more gods as something you do in their honor. This practice of dedicating a task or action to a god is something called devotional activity. Make Athena proud with your efforts to learn. Also, show the gods that you want to know them better by learning more about them and how to worship them. Also, Sophia is always going to be a bigger deal in Reconstructionist approaches. Because it takes so much from the past, you have to know the past. That does not mean only looking into specific practices, but also keeping an eye on current research. There's still research being done into the archaeology and history of Greece to this day. Sometimes that means they find new cursed tablets or recently a cursed bottle of sorts. Other times it's that they find new evidence of a god's worship going further back than they thought. You'll recall the previous episode that I talked about the Minoans Linear A and Linear B scripts. We are still doing research into translating those. Learning is never ending and continuous. It also has no shortcuts. While I am trying with this podcast to make it a little easier and more accessible, by no means should you end with me. My biggest wish is that in doing this podcast, I can spark a fire in you to know the theory better and learn more about them. I'm not a complete expert, nor am I the only perspective on this. More exists and seeking them out may open your eyes to something new. Another pillow is Safrasune. 
This refers to temperance or self-control, usually through deep thought. While this somewhat refers to your temper, it is more frequently viewed as just the belief in moderation in all things and to avoid hubris. While this one isn't as popular and seen, I think there's definitely an element of truth to it. If we're looking at the physical needs we have, overindulging is never good, even in good things. Too much water can make you unable to fully process and absorb nutrients, flushing them out of your system. Too much alcohol can destroy your liver. Overindulgence in your health is the most obvious because we can see how it hurts our bodies and feel it most easily. But overindulgence in other areas can be equally harmful. I also do feel that this pillar is very dependent on the person though. While a passive approach to temperance is good for some, some people with mental health issues may find this encourages unhealthy patterns. Similar to how I spoke about Nomos Arceus setting us up for failure with unattainable goals, I think Safrasune has similar issues in that it can also do that or encourage existing issues by giving them fuel. Because of that, I do think that the idea behind this pillar is good, but definitely one to weigh against your personal issues as to how much you want to incorporate it. The last of the majorly accepted pillars is Xenia. Xenia is about hospitality. Even in ancient times, we see stories of mortals not treating guests well and being punished by the Theoi for their lack of Xenia. It's also, conversely, about being a good guest and not doing things like stealing from your host. In fact, the whole kidnapping of Helen from Sparta is a good example of a violation of Xenia. Paris was a visitor to Sparta and while there, depending on the version, either seduces or kidnaps his host's wife, Helen. Don't be Paris when you visit other people's homes. Practice Xenia and treat their things equally well as you treat your own things. This concept also applies to foreigners. They were also to be shown Xenia. It's why many take offense to those attempting to gatekeep in this religion. The Greeks have always practiced Xenia. Why are you trying to show bad form here? Other less common pillars would be Catharmos, the act of being ritually clean. This is basically just Hagnia by a different name. And another would be Charis, the act of giving to the gods so they might give something in return. It's kind of similar to Eusebia, but focuses more on the idea of worship in the aspect of reciprocity. You give in order to cultivate good relationships with the gods so that they are more inclined to fulfill your requests. Some people don't like this approach to worship just because it does kind of commodify the gods a bit, and some people don't care for that. All right, now that we've covered all the pillars, I'm sure you're wondering if you have to follow them to be a good practitioner. No, you do not. These aren't rules, no one really agrees on them, and ultimately they're more of good ideas than something you will be judged on. There are many who do not follow or subscribe to the pillars. I personally don't. My reasoning on this is quite simple. I feel it is too similar to Christianity personally. I agree with the thoughts behind the pillars, but the codification sits poorly with me. So while I do try to practice the ideas of them in some ways, I do not actively consider them part of my worship. But if you choose to, that's fine. Some people use them because it gives them structure and a starting place. Alright, part 7, Hebrews. So as a final part of our episode, let's discuss the concept of Hebrews. Hubris in Hellenic polytheism is the idea of excessive pride, especially in relation to a mortal's rank compared to a god. Another view of this would be defiance of the gods or the divine order. 
Many in the community will cite this as the closest concept to a sin within our religion. The reason we say this is because one of the most fundamental concepts is that the Theoli are above mortals. They are divinities, by their very nature, better than any of us mortals. So they are owed our respect and worship. So by a person thinking themselves equal or above the gods, they go against not only the reasons why we worship them, but also surpass the gods. You see various examples of this in the myths from Arachne to Niobe. You could even argue that this lends to the idea that the myths can be viewed as more parables of sorts, a story that teaches us the consequences of things like hubris. The mortals that displayed hubris suffer consequences for their actions. In Arachne's case, she's turned into a spider. In Niobe's, she loses the very thing she boasted about to the gods, her many children. Some even claim to still see signs of this type of reaction to this day. But this falls into unverified personal gnosis, so we'll stay away from that from now. But that said, I will be doing a bonus episode this month. I am trying to line up a guest to come on so we can discuss our thoughts on some of the topics from this episode and our takes on them. We'll also be approaching some ideas tangentially related, but more subject to our personal opinions. As a fair warning, we will probably not be as careful or selective about how we express these opinions as we may swear or possibly express some more controversial takes. What I want to show is more how practitioners can vary in their approach and their reasoning behind it. I do hope that you will join us for the episode though. Okay, so that's all for this month. We've covered a lot of looser concepts this month. And as I just iterated, there will be a bonus episode of Source this month with a guest discussing some of these topics in more depth. As far as next month, we will be discussing the myths more and ways to view them in relation to Hellenic polytheism. <laughs> Should be a fun episode. This is Sybil, and this is the podcast Sybil's Guide to Olympian Worship. All praise to Thiwi, and may they, whichever gods you worship, bless your life. I will see you all next month.